Hello, friends. This is Darren Hayes of PigskinDispatch.com. Before we take you to your favorite Sports History Network show, just want to tell you a little bit about some merch that you can pick up that represents your favorite SHN podcast. So far, there's t-shirts, coffee mugs, and even books from some of the authors that do podcasts right here on SHN. Who could buy something better than that than have the history right from the, the gentleman that you hear talking about it? But we also are adding things each and every day. And where's that store, may you ask? Well, it's at SportsHistoryNetwork.com. Up at the top, there is the SHN. HN merch button. Click on that. It'll take you right to the store and you can be representing your favorite podcast and show the world that, hey, on the swag that I'm using, it's the headquarters of Sports Yesteryear, Sports History Network, and my favorite podcaster, the Sports History Network store. Shop there today. The 19th century was a boom period for the games from Europe and North America that are today loved across the planet. With the British and the French colonial empires having created an extremely wealthy upper class, leisure time was plentiful for the richest of the 1800s, and many apparently filled their leisure time with codifying sports. In North America, plentiful land in the countryside, new money in the cities, and a general fervor for innovation added up to high creativity in the sporting world. Soccer, rugby, American football, baseball, tennis, badminton, ice hockey, field hockey, lacrosse, boxing, handball, billiards, all were standardized and organized in the 1880s. Basketball and volleyball were invented in the 1890s, and that same decade saw the reintroduction of the Olympic Games, featuring 43 sports we still play today. Perhaps the only major Western sport originating before this explosion of national and international competitions is cricket. Cricket can boast the longest continuous history in Euro-American sport, with record of organized matches going back to the early 1600s. Yet, whereas Western sports are often celebrated for their longevity, greatest of all time is a singularly English-language expression after all, all the previously mentioned pastimes are historically mere infants when compared with sumo. The origin of Japanese wrestling, or sumo, boasts a history beginning in about 1050 BCE, making this sport not quite as old as the ball games of pre-Columbian Mesoamerica, but older than the Olympics of ancient Greece. And, like those games, sumo blurs the distinction between ritual and chance, between theater and sport. Edo became the capital of Japan in 1608, and in turn became the de facto capital of sumo, and sumo soon became an obsession throughout most of the country. By 1650, national tournaments were regularly held, fostered by the new national government. Organizers and enthusiasts developed a sense of the all-time greats after a few decades of tournaments. Meticulous record-keeping and rarely changed rules meant comparison of great wrestlers between eras was simpler, and achievement of the rank of Yokozuna was akin to Hall of Fame induction. And in the 1790s, when most sports westerners adore today didn't even exist, one of the greatest athletes of all time walked the earth. His name? was Raiden. He was a sumo wrestler, and for six and a half years, he was nearly unbeatable. On this episode of Truly the Goats, we'll talk about Raiden, the greatest athlete few in the West have ever heard of. We'll also talk about Hakuho, Raiden's counterpart in 20th century sumo, and get an understanding of what discussions of all-time great really mean. My name is Oz Davis, and this is Truly the Goats, sports history as told through its superstars.
of sumo and its attendant pageantry can seem as incomprehensible as, say, cricket or American football. For example, in researching this podcast, I checked out a book entitled The Essential Guide to Sumo. There is no sumo for dummies. The book is 263 pages long, and the entire thing is a glossary. But as it turns out, the basics of sumo are actually pretty easy to understand, at least as explained by Andrew Freund, director of USA Sumo, and, since 2001, producer of the annual U.S. Sumo Open. Andrew Freund, thanks for joining us on Truly the Goats for this episode. Oh, great to be here today. Excited to talk about sumo with you. Let's get right down to the basics. How do you explain sumo to someone who knows almost nothing about the game? Yeah, when it comes to actual competition. When it comes to a sumo match, it's relatively simple and easy to understand. I think one of the cool things about sumo is that you could have a novice, either a novice spectator or even a novice participant, who would learn and pick up a great deal of what's going on in an extremely short period of time. But the really cool thing is that the amount of subtlety in sumo takes many years, if not decades, to understand the depth of what's going on. So To answer your question, let's say as a viewer, as an audience member, yeah, it is fairly simple. You basically are looking for one of the wrestlers to either step out of the ring or for any part of their body besides the soles of the feet to touch the ground. So you you can beat your opponent, in other words, by pushing him down or out of the ring. The only part of the body that can legally touch the ground in the ring is the soles of the feet. So if someone twists their foot so the top of the foot touches, if the knee goes down, a finger goes down, uh, you lose the match. So in, in that sense... The rules are are quite simple. What about the ritual aspect of sumo? Uh, You watch these matches, and a lot of them are over in seconds, and yet the formalities before the match are a lot longer, a lot more complex. What is that all about? So first of all, in terms of pro-sumo, they have maintained rituals for centuries, and it's an integral part of what we call a sport. But again, pro-sumo in Japan, ozumo, or it's translated often as grand sumo, is much more than just a sport. And part of that is the rituals. Those have been around in various forms for centuries, if not you know, over a millennium. So just to give you an idea of what it looks like today, there are roughly, and this fluctuates obviously, but let's say roughly 700 pro sumo wrestlers, and they have six tournaments a year of 15 days each, 15 days in January, the next tournament in March, May, July, September, November. And if you were to attend one of those 15 days of a tournament, you know, the the competition is basically from about 9 a.m. to 6 p.m. The first seven hours or so, let's say 9 to, well, let's say 9 to 3.30 maybe, you would see about 200 matches of lower-ranked guys. And in those matches, the rituals are fairly quick. They're fairly tight. The entire pre-bout ritual might be one to two minutes max because they do an abbreviated version, they throw salt fewer times, there's a lot less involved. In fact, if I'm not mistaken, the very lowest ranks, it's over very quickly in 30 seconds or something. When you get to the top rank guys, the guys who are considered sekitori, which is roughly the top 70 wrestlers, the top two divisions are comprised of those 70 wrestlers, they are doing three or four minutes, maybe even up to five minutes of pre-bout rituals, which largely consist of repetitive rituals, they're they're uh, toweling off. They're, they're sipping chikara which is like power water. They they sip it, spit it out. 
they have a small towel, they wipe their sweat, they kind of psych themselves up, they throw salt in the ring as a symbolic purificatory element to call for a, a fair fight. And they assume the starting position, but don't actually start multiple times. So that's kind of building up the intensity, building up the drama, gets them in the mood to, to focus and fight. And, you know, to American sensibilities or to some other foreigners, I suppose, it's a lot of prep for a very short match, but it's just a different mindset. And from the sports historian's viewpoint, sumo is a marvel. Sumo in various forms has been around in Japan for many centuries. Some people trace its roots back anywhere from 1,500 to 2,000 years. But it's been in kind of its current form for the last three, 400 years in Japan. And so over there, it's not just popular as a sport per se, but it's almost a cultural icon. And it's a lot more involved than any sport we have here because when you join, you're essentially committing yourself to it year-round. There's no off-season. The rituals undertaken before the match harken back not just to sumo's distant past, but to the distant past of sports itself. The origin of sumo extend beyond not only Japanese written history, but to the days when sport wasn't quite yet sport. As with the ball games of Mesoamerica, early sumo exhibitions combine aspects of athletic competition with elements of performative theater and spiritual meaning. For the sports history fan, Sumo is a dream. Professional organized sumo began in 1684, and a continuous written record of bouts, records, tournaments, results, and rankings goes back to 1761. That's a good 84 years before the first organized baseball game in America, 135 years before the revival of the Olympics in Athens. Thus, in an argument about sumo's greatest of all time, one can rely on 350 years' worth of stats to do so. Of course, for over 200 years, the question of who was Sumo's goat wasn't a question at all. It was Raiden. Raiden was born and raised in Tobu, today called Tomi, Nagano Prefecture, in 1767, about 150 years into the Edo period, a 265-year span of isolation, which created prosperity and growth in nearly all areas of culture under what is generally referred to in the West as a shogunate dictatorship. To learn more about both the Edo period in Japan and the evolution of sumo into the present, I spoke with Dr. Dennis Frost. Dr. Frost is Director of East Asian Studies and Associate Professor of East Asian Social Sciences at Kalamazoo College in Michigan. He's the author of Seeing Stars, Sports, Celebrity, Identity, and Body Culture in Modern Japan, and is currently working on a book on the history of disability sports in Japan. We know that Raiden, his peak, is in the 1790s, early 1800s. Now, this is more or less the peak of the so-called Edo period, as we call it nowadays. What can you tell us about that period with regard to this explosion in the arts and in Japanese culture? What precipitated that, and what was that about? So part of what makes the, the Tokugawa or Edo, and those names get used kind of interchangeably depending on what you're focusing on, refers to, you know, the period about 1600 to 1868 is what we're talking about. It's a period, a very long period where you have peace in Japan, and so that's one of your biggest factors. So you, up, but the century before that had been one fraught with war, so, you know, the 1500s, 1400s, up into the 1500s, all the way up to about 1600, lots of conflict, lots of war. So then you get this long, long period of peace. And so just the peace and stability itself promotes a lot of opportunity for culture to flourish. The other thing that we see happen in that period is that 
you have the the Tokugawa shogunate. The Tokugawa family sets up a shogunate. It's not the first shogunate in Japanese history. There are actually two before it. But the Tokugawa shogunate it does something that the others didn't. Shogunates are technically just warrior governments, right? They're governments that oversee the warriors in J- Japanese history. But the Tokugawa shogunate managed to extend its control out pretty much over all of society in one way or another. And so they kind of uh, established a system and it led to this extended peace. It also had this really fascinating system of control that they used where they would have, they had moving the, the different lords, the daimyo they're called in Japanese, these lords would have to move back and forth between the shogun's capital and their home territories every other year. And so this led to this kind of flow of people and goods. And that's, you know, another way you get kind of cultural production. You also see uh, the growth of the large cities. So Edo, the shogun's capital, which is where the name of the period comes from, which is today's Tokyo, becomes like at one point right around right around this time, actually. It's, you know, one of the largest cities, if not the largest city in the world. Uh, and so you also have Osaka and Kyoto and other cities that emerge. So urbanization, uh, the kind of confluence of kind of people moving. That at the and the peace and then the stability that comes from this this period. It's also one where Japan is essentially locked down, so they have limited contact with the outside world. And you know that for a lot of history, people have looked at that and said kind of that made Japan backwards. The other way to think of that is that well, it allowed them to really develop their own culture, getting exposed to what they wanted to be exposed to, and not having stuff forced on them. That changes, and that's part of what brings the period down in the end. By the age of fourteen, Radens outlier physique led him to begin training in sumo. Three years later, he was discovered by the master of the stable, now known as Isinomi, and returned to Edo to train for the professional ranks. There, in the marvelous capital during a golden age, young Seki Tarokichi was mentored full-time by Tanikazi, one of the greatest sumo of the 18th century and only the fourth man ever to be given the rank of Yokozuna. Even a legend like Tanakazi had to be impressed upon first sight of the boy who would become Raiden. At the time of his arrival in Edo, he measured at an incredible six foot five and a half inches. As a professional, that number would go up to six six. He wasn't up to his ultimate fighting weight of 373 pounds, but was definitely at least at 320. By an average of two inches and 30 pounds was Raiden bigger than his sumo opponents. Of the 21st century, in his era, Raiden was a 99 percentile athlete, 6 inches taller and 80 pounds more massive than the average Oseki-level opponent. But size isn't everything, even for a Shaquille O'Neal-like outlier in a sport of strength. For, just as with other subjects as truly the goats, Raiden was born with that most priceless of all qualities, luck. Just as Babe Didrikson was fortunate enough to have lived in a golden age of women's amateur athletics in the U.S. and Flama the Gladiator came of age at the height of the Roman Empire's wealth and obsession with sport, Raiden could not have chosen a better time period to live as a sumo wrestler than the Edo period. Under the guidance of Tanikazi, the 22-year-old appeared as Raiden, a sort of portmanteau of the Japanese words for thunder and lightning, in the official rankings of top wrestlers, though he hadn't yet fought a match. When he debuted in 1790, he became an immediate sensation, registering eight wins and two draws against zero losses in the Sekiwawi level tournament. On this level, Raiden would end up with 48 tournament match wins and six draws to just two losses. When Tanikazi died suddenly from influenza at the age of 44, Raiden was given Tanikazi's title of Ozeki, the highest rank in sumo. As an Ozeki, Raiden's career tournament match record was 200 wins, 24 draws, and 7 losses. Want some more 6 stats? There are plenty. For example, 
Raiden won every tournament in which he participated from November 1793 through April 1800. He won 28 of 35 tournaments lifetime, including 24 in which he went undefeated and 7 in which he went unbeaten and untied. He compiled a streak of 32 wins and 3 draws in 35 matches over 4 tournaments from 1806 to 1808, which included a run of 18 straight wins. And he has a lifetime 96.2% winning percentage. Of all the cultural heroes the Shogunate hoped to create during the Edo period, Raiden may have been the biggest, literally and figuratively. Down and the end. Now, of course, during the Edo time period, this is when sumo kind of becomes national sport. They put the center of operations in the capital, in Edo. They organize it. They make rules. They they start keeping statistics of the tournaments at this time and such. So here's Raiden, who for a couple of years is absolutely more or less unbeatable, absolutely dominant, and really sticks out in a crowd. Yep. I mean, a six six guy, three hundred twenty some odd pounds, pretty obvious guy. So what kind of celebrity culture was there around sumo and other athletes at this time period? So this is right up my alley because this is what my first book was, like I said, is Modern Stars. But one of the points I make there is that part of why you see modern stars emerge so quickly in Japan, even though some, many sports are new in Japan, is that they actually have this tradition of sumo stars that were famous figures. There's prints we have. Um, the fact – partly we know about Raiden because he wrote um, himself. He wrote diaries, and so we have records that he himself produced, uh, which is unusual for sumo wrestlers. A lot of them were not particularly well-educated. Um, but but we also uh, know like that sumo wrestlers – there's all sorts of wrestlers from the Edo period, even before Raiden, that uh, we know their exact height and weight, um, You know, so that people were kind of obsessed with this. They would buy buy uh, Kabuki or ukiyo-e prints, the, the woodblock prints, uh, and of, of wrestlers and of kabuki actors and, you know, even some of the famous women in the pleasure quarters. Uh, and so there was books uh, and accounts of this. They didn't have newspapers necessarily, so it wasn't a mass media. But this is a, a form of media, you know, the, these woodblock prints that was circulating, and it might move between Edo because you might have, you know, one of those lords would carry it back home and then share it with other people, or some of his people that came with him might buy these. And then we know that Raiden was supported by a lord. Uh, so there's kind of levels of recognition. So you have the really famous wrestlers actually get stipends. They get money from these, these various daimyo, these lords, and are treated almost like one of the samurai retainers. They get to wear swords uh, on special occasions. They get special garments. So there's that level. And then there's the popular level with, where you have these tournaments in Osaka – where, you know, on a, any given day, 5,000 people show up and they're marketing, they're putting their names on these, these bonske, the rankings, based on their prestige. So like Raiden would often on the rankings outside of Edo, he would be actually lower ranked than other local wrestlers because they would use the local wrestlers to promote the tournament. We don't have the, the stats that we have today by any stretch, but there's evidence that says that there was a celebrity culture in the Edo period. After retiring in 1811 at 43 years of age, Raiden became a sumo organizer and wrote the diary, A Journal of Sumo in Various Regions, which was wildly popular for decades after its first printing. His death at age 57 in 1825 was mourned nationwide, and he now has memorial markers in two locations aside from his grave in Edo itself. 
To those outside sumo fandom, the oddest bit of the story of Raiden's life and career is that, unlike his mentor, Raiden was never awarded the highest possible honor in sumo, the bestowal of the Yokozuna ranking, an award which wasn't codified until the 20th century. Raiden is known for this incredible tournament run that he had for about seven years, but historically speaking, he's always got that asterisk, maybe the first asterisk in the history of sports, in that he never achieved that top status of uh, Yokozuna. And uh, you told me prior to this show that you didn't think that was that big a deal, that this was just sort of a bestowed title. Can you tell me more about that? Yeah, really, it's a non-issue. Historically, the the title of Yokozuna was kind of an add-on title. It was kind of a formality, and now it's an official rank. So in the past, the highest rank was Ozeki, and then they gave certain Ozeki this honorific title of Yokozuna. But if if you look up a lot of the records on this, it describes how that was often based on you know patrons or wealthy supporters paying to have their Ozeki or their champion to be allowed to do an official ceremony, etc. So in history, not recently, but centuries ago, it was not merit-based. It was simply an honorary title. So it's like, you know, in another sport, someone getting admitted to a Hall of Fame or not getting admitted to a Hall of Fame is, is quite subjective. And it's even more subjective when it comes to the Yokozuna title in past centuries, or I should say actually more like the 17th, 18th, and even 19th century. In recent years, at least for the last hundred years or so, Yokozuna is an official title that is merit-based. And so if Raiden was competing and living you know, 50 years ago and he wasn't Yokozuna, it would be unthinkable. But the entire definition of what Yokozuna was and the significance of it was totally different back then. So it's really not even a talking point in my book uh, of him not having the Yokozuna title. So forget the asterisks. Titles aside, the truth is is that Raiden's winning percentage simply must be one of the unbeatable records in all the sports. The Edo period ended by 1870, allowing the Japanese to import this strange young game called baseball. But sumo had been ensured popularity in Japan for another century. Yokozuna or no, Raiden became a near-mythical figure in greater Japanese culture. The name Raiden synonymous with figures of strength and power all the way into the present with iterations in the Pokemon franchise, the Shumatsu no Valkyrie manga, and of course, Finish him. Mortal Kombat. Ah! Raiden wins. Flawless victory. Fatality. And the stats back the legend. For 200 years after his last match, Raiden's status as Sumo's goat was unassailable. But then, along came Hakuho. become known as Hakuho, was born in 1985 in the comfortable surroundings of a son of a national sports hero, a winner of an Olympic silver medal in freestyle wrestling. But that young man was trim and muscular, hardly huge of frame, and he was a millennial. His first love was basketball, yet he read sumo magazines frequently, not so much as a fan, as one who wanted to build up muscle like they did, imagining the extra weight to be a definite plus in muscling out rebounds underneath the boards. When his father introduced him to sumo, the preteen took to the new sport quickly. At 15 years old, he came to Tokyo to join a stable, 
appealing to one Maya after another for two months before finally managing to break into the fledgling Miyagino stable. Apparently the only stable willing to train a greenhorn weighing in under 140 pounds. It wasn't long before his fellow wrestlers had tagged him Hakuho, or White Pang, where Pang is an avian creature of Asian mythology known as the King of Birds. But as much potential as his peers may have seen in him, they certainly had no idea that this tiny kid would someday become Sumo's greatest of all time. When he was promoted to Yokozuna at just 22 years old, other pros were certainly well impressed, but greatest of all time status in a 3,000-year-old sport requires some serious domination over an extended period of time. And whoa, did Hakuho deliver. How great is Hakuho? I'll let the man in the sport tell it. In terms of actual statistical records, Hakuho has almost all of them. Hakuho has the most sumo tournament champion titles by far at 43. Just to compare the the other current Yokozuna Kakuryu, I believe he has five or six. I'll look it up while we're talking, actually. But currently, for example, there's two grand champions or Yokozuna. Hakuho is one of them with 43 titles, and Kakuryu, who's extremely good as well, like Hakuho, he's from Mongolia, he has six champion titles. And six in and of itself is pretty spectacular. Actually, the previous record was 32, I believe, by Taiho, and people said for many decades that no one could ever possibly surpass the 32 that Taiho had, and it was just inconceivable that someone like Hakuho would come along and just blaze right through that, and he, he may even win more. He's still in, in very good condition, even though he's approaching 35. So Hanko Ho has all these records, not just tournament champion titles, but all kinds of other records. But it's hard to compare uh, him with someone like Naiden, because they're in a different era. There weren't as many tournaments in Naiden's time, and there weren't as many detailed records kept of everything. So it's, it's tough to compare them it's not quite like apples and oranges, but they're not quite on the same playing field in a sense. So Naiden was competing over 200 years ago. And let's just take, you know, Naiden had, I believe it's 28 or so tournament championship titles. And 28 is unbelievable, but it's much more unbelievable when you consider that instead of six tournaments a year, like Hakuho has, Naiden only competed in two tournaments a year. So in terms of... Um, the ratio of tournament victories, it's absolutely unbelievable. Like, Naiden by far beats anybody else ever in terms of the, you know, the percentage of tournaments he competed in and that he won. Also, but Hakuho in his career, I know, has roughly an, something like an 85% match, you know, win-loss, you know, 85% win percentage. So if he's fought, let's say, 1,200 matches, he's won over 1,000, which is incredible because a lot of the top guys are hovering around 55 60%. The reason it's not that high for most guys is because you're always placed at a level that matches your skill. So if you win more, batches, excuse me, if you win more bat, matches, Oz, you would move up the ranks, and if you lose more, you move down the ranks. So you're always roughly at about that 50% mark unless you're at the very, very top like Hakuho, and so Hakuho's dominance is just incredible, but the dominance of Raiden with, with historical records is far beyond Hakuho's because supposedly he has 254 wins and 10 losses and 41 buys, I think, due to injury, but 254 to 10 is just 
unbelievable. I mean, that, that win-loss ratio is, what is it here? Let's see. That's about 96% instead of 85%. So his dominance in terms of percentage of wins is far beyond anyone ever in pro sumo. So that is one thing that, that is just amazing for Biden. While expansion of the tournament structure, and therefore the opportunity for sumo wrestlers to win greater numbers of championships, is hardly surprising to anyone who follows virtually any North American sport. Hakuho's consistent performance over 16 years against top-level competition is historical. And, like the astounding success both have enjoyed, Hakuho and the legendary Raiden had one huge commonality, that historical timing. You see, Hakuho was born and raised in Mongolia. By 1985, the year Hakuho was born, just 39 foreigners had ever competed in any of the four highest levels of professional sumo, with most of these from Korea, the United States, and Brazil. Only one foreigner had ever won a top division tournament, and Mongolian wrestlers wouldn't crack the league until 1992. That's a great question. And uh, before I answer that, I want to just compare one other stat between Hakuho and Raiden, and then we'll go into that. And on the other hand, to show that Hakuho is also quite dominant, you have to consider that Hakuho is going against a much broader field of competitors, much bigger talent pool, including many non-Japanese competitors that Raiden didn't have to face. Yeah, and Raiden, I looked it up, his, um, his consecutive winning streak, his best consecutive winning streak was 44 bouts in a row, which is just incredible. I mean, it's just inconceivable almost that, that any combat support could have someone who wins 44 times in a row against the best in the world. Hakuho's was, I believe, 63 in a row. So in, in terms of consecutive bouts won, Hakuho is at least uh, is good and definitely better in that category compared to Raiden. Um, but let's compare them um, as if they were going to compete, uh, uh, compete against each other or compete today. So you have to think about this. Uh, as you mentioned, Maiden was nearly six foot six. He was listed as around 373 pounds. Hakuho is about 6'4", and roughly in the 340 to 350-pound range. So they're pretty comparable in terms of size. They're, they're maybe 20, 30 pounds apart at most, which is not much when it comes to these pro sumo wrestlers. But you have to consider that in Raiden's time, 200-plus years ago when he was competing, a lot of his opponents were, you know, five foot six, 180 pounds, or five foot eight, 200 pounds. A lot of them uh, were much smaller, much, much smaller than guys we would see competing today. Um, and he was, I think, almost undoubtedly one of the biggest, if not the biggest, uh, in his time, versus Hakuho, who at under 350 pounds, He's actually undersized. Most of his opponents are heavier than him. So in that sense, you know, Ryden had a much better uh, tournament victory percentage record. But again, you have to compare the field. So Hakuho is going against a much larger field, probably a lot more uh, bigger athletic guys. And another note, I just should mention this. In the modern day, they have... Uh, you know, like I mentioned, six tournaments, 15 days each. That's 90 matches in a year. And a lot of guys are, you know, winning 30, 40, 50 matches in a year, so they're trying to get over 45 and win most of their matches. There's a couple different calendar years where Huckleho won 86 out of 90 matches, which it's incredible. I mean, I think when he when Huckleho has not been around or when he was, you know, injured for one or two tournaments, the best guy in one year would win about 60 matches. 60, so they would lose 30. 
And when Hako Ho's at his best, he's losing four in a year as opposed to 30. So um, in terms of how dominant Hako Ho is in his era, on paper, it's not quite as much as Raiden, but keep in mind that Hako Ho is doing 90 matches a year as opposed to 20 for Raiden. So, you know, injuries catch up with you fairly quickly. You have to be really at the top of your game at all times with almost no break when you're doing six tournaments a year as opposed to two. Since the 1990s, limits on the number of foreigners a stable may train have been imposed, but no matter. In the 80s and 90s, 12 countries produced their first top-level sumo wrestlers ever, and seven more, all European, did likewise in the odds. Currently, 17 of the top 75 wrestlers are foreign-born, including both active Yokozuna, the Mongolians Hakuho, and Kakuho. Other nations with wrestlers among the top rank are Brazil, Bulgaria, and Georgia. And in the other top ranks are those from Hungary, the Philippines, Russia, and Ukraine. From March 2006 to January 2016, not a single top-level tournament was won by a Japanese sumo. Short of it, Japan and its one-time national pastime has globalized. Ultimately, this is an aspect of Hakuho's career which will be cemented in sports history. Hakuho may not have been the first non-Japanese wrestler to achieve greatness in the sport, but his continued excellence is the end result of history, of the Japanese ceding monolithic superiority to international competition. As sports writer John Gunning wrote about the past 30 years of sumo in a February 2019 piece for the Japan Times, the sport transitioned from hand-wringing over whether a foreigner could ever possess the dignity required of a grand champion to being led by a Mongolian Yokozuna who displayed more hinkaku dignity and understanding of the role and his place in sumo history than almost every one of his predecessors. Whether or not the dynasty of Hakuho and the Mongolians is good for fandom in Japan is another question, however. Uh, I think one of the reasons we see Hakuho is so dominant is that there hasn't been equal competition in recent years. And maybe it was more equal in the past, and so that's why we it kind of it seemed more even. We didn't have this somebody achieving this level of domination. But definitely kind of there was a whole stretch there where there was no other Yokozuna. It was just him. And so I think that that's probably changed the nature of the game too. How much of the doubt about Japanese uh, sumo is the fact that Japan's losing the edge? I think of cricket for England or rugby for England or uh, even to some extent baseball for the Americans. Is the creator of the sport losing the edge? Is that why there's this negative kind of opinion about it? I think that may be part of it. I think there is a sense that sumo is a, the national sport. I mean, that was an argument. I talk a little bit about that in my first book about that really you don't see that argument emerge until the 1900s at, at a point when it's almost under threat, that it's kind of being reinvented as the national sport uh, in some ways and marketed as that. And I you know, today, part of it is that sumo just doesn't have the same popularity in general as baseball. I mean, baseball is the de facto national sport in Japan from the Little League level all the way up. So there's no question that sumo is not on par with baseball. And even in the early, you know, the early Meiji period, the 1800s, early 1900s, one of my favorite pictures that I saw just recently when I was in Tokyo this last time was a picture of sumo wrestlers uh, in their mawashi, their garb, playing baseball. So great just the, the image of that. And it was an old picture from that time period. So there was this threat, concern that it was kind of a threat. And I think that that's partly what we're seeing is that like, oh, the national sport is fading. We don't have the athletes. When I was there this last time, it was in 2017. They had a, 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 a Japanese born Yokozuna for the first time in years wrestling. 
And so he was the hope of the sport. The stadiums were packed. Or the, every arena was packed when he was there. Sellout crowds. And then he got injured and then essentially never made it back and has since retired. So I think that that kind of up and down speaks to what you're getting at. I had this discussion with a, a boxer, too, because Japanese boxers were actually pretty big at, at certain points in time. Uh, and one of the things he told me was that, you know, now Japan essentially has too much money. So sports like sumo and boxing really struggle. That's why you're seeing the dominance of Japanese athletes and things like golf and tennis, because there's too much money in Japan, was his argument. And that's oversimplifying things quite a bit, but there's an interesting element to that. On the other hand... There's so many arguments that would say today, of course, that Hakuho is the greatest ever, and I couldn't say no to those. Although, without enough actual evidence, especially video evidence and other <laughs> documentary evidence from Raiden's period, it, it's hard to uh, compare on an even playing field there. But, you know, definitely I'll say this, that Hakuho uh, is supposed to, or he's planning to, continue competing at least until the Tokyo Olympics. So he might even continue beyond that if he's still in good condition, considering he's getting older. But if anybody likes sumo and it's still the year 2020 when you're listening to this, you definitely have a great chance to check out Hakuho in action. And I'd encourage you to do that before he retires. I've, I've met him several times in various different countries and locations, and he's quite an amazing uh, person. He's really the ultimate, not just athlete, but ambassador to sports and to sumo because it's amazing his work ethic, not only in the ring, but he talks to fans after practice. He signs autographs. He'll always go that extra yard to, you know, to, to please uh, his supporters and everybody interested in sumo. So just since, since you mentioned that about Hakuho, there's going to be a great void when he does retire from active competition. Right. And if he chooses to retire in 2020, which he may or may not, he will at least wait until after the Olympics, the reason being that Traditionally, when the Olympics has been held in Japan for the opening ceremonies, etc., they always have a great yokozuna, a grand champion, ah. perform, perform the, the ritual, the dokyoiri ritual, as part of that, and he doesn't want to miss that great opportunity. So, obviously, he could still retire after the July tournament, but if he does, he would at least wait until after the Olympics take place in August. To that point. The COVID-19 pandemic has added a potential new wrinkle for sumo. My conversation with Andrew Freund was recorded before the shutdown of major sports events, including most 2020 sumo tournaments through the summer and the Tokyo Olympic Games. Presumably, Hakuho will stay active in sumo until the 2021 Games, if they go off, but the end of his wrestling career is presumably in sight. I was told that Hakuho had been planning to retire quite possibly after the 2020 Olympics. Now, that's not going to happen anymore, right. and he might stay on until 2021. Nevertheless, he is thinking about retirement really soon. Is that going to hurt the sport in terms of fan interest? I don't know. I mean, and that's – I. it's a hard read. And, and part of this is that, you know, I. it's harder to follow here, Sumo, in the yeah. States than it is when I'm there. So I, when I'm there, like, watch every tournament on television, follow it in newspapers. Here, you know, I have to kind of, I'm always at least a day behind. And so it's kind of hard to get a sense of, of the fan base that he has. I think for, I think the fact that he took on, took, became a Japanese citizen, he's done the things that some of the previous wrestlers, Asa Shodyu is the, the example of that, right? That Asa Shodyu just kind of rubbed everybody the wrong way. He was a great wrestler. I watched him wrestle in, like, amazing technique. But I think his personality clashed. But Hakuho has been much more kind of 
responsive to when people criticize him, he takes it and acknowledges it and uh, addresses those kinds of issues. But, you know, that, I don't know who's going to step up. I mean, I guess that's the that's the real question, right? Is who's is it is it maybe going to open it up and we'll see a much more even set of tournaments in the future? Part of this is that the the up and comers have injury injuries are kind of the the bane of wrestlers' existence. I mean, you mentioned the health issues, and so a lot of the top wrestlers are, are hurt, and you know they miss one to two tournaments a year, and so it's hard for them to stay healthy. I don't know if if without him at the top, it'll maybe even out, and maybe that'll actually bring the interest back up. That's the other way to look at it. But I don't know. It's a good question, and I don't. I wish I had a better answer for you, but it'll be interesting to see. Yeah. All right, that will just about do it. However, there is the question we tend to ask our guests here on Truly the Goats. In your opinion, is Hakuho the goat? I'm going to have to go with yes. Those who have listened to Truly the Goats, or who know me personally, will find it surprising that this show is willing to endorse a still active athlete as the greatest of all time. Truly the Goats is all about having perspective on sports history, about allowing time, statistics, and even memory to take effect on the legends of the games. But, in sumo, such statements are not made lightly. Those in professional sumo begin with a sense of perspective. And hinkaku. How important, in your view, is the history of the game to modern sumo participants, to the coaches, to the reporters, whatnot? Well, all the wrestlers, all the dikshi or pro sumo wrestlers who join today are supposed to learn a great deal of the history, of the culture, etc., and, you know, the ranking system is very hierarchical, so everyone knows their place in the system. And every single person who enters, enters pro sumo is recruited to a specific team, and normally you're on that team until you retire. It's not like you can be traded. It's not like you're drafted and you're, you're traded and you switch teams and sign other contracts. You're basically married to your team. The only exceptions are when, let's say, a, a team folds, Let's say there's a, you know, let's say the Oyakata or the coach passes away and has not named a successor or there's not a successor who's qualified or a coach or a team is kicked out of the federation for some reason. In those cases, let's say the wrestlers who are on a team that has folded would then be assigned or would join another kind of, you know, sibling team because there are connections between the teams. There's different ways they're connected. And I'm mentioning that because they trace all these teams back with these very specific names for for many decades and even centuries. And so the history is very important in pro sumo, not just the, the list of teams and the famous wrestlers, but also how different techniques developed, the success of certain wrestlers, you know, how they coped with injuries. All of these past great sumo wrestlers are, are studied by people today. And so the story of Hakuho goes straight to the heart of the Truly the Goats ethos. Yes, it is quite possible to be witnessing true all-time sports greats in real time in the 21st century, but in the blind rush to aggrandize and hyperbolize the merely well above average in sports, we run the risk of minimizing the accomplishments of a legend in our own time. Even a legend like Hakuho, the greatest sumo wrestler of all time. This has been Truly the Goats, an inclusive media production. We'd like to thank our guests, Andrew Freund of USA Sumo and Dr. Dennis Frost of Kalamazoo College. For more on USA Sumo and its schedule of competitions, visit the official website at usasumo.com. 
Dennis Frost's book, Seeing Stars, is available from Harvard University Press at hup.harvard.edu. Music appearing in this episode is by Eric Taylor Music, Yakov Gorman, Audio Tools, and Action Davis. No relation. Information on these tracks is available in the episode notes. Extra materials, show notes, blog posts, and other related stuff on the greatest of all time are available on our website at trulythegoats.com. On Facebook and Twitter, find us at trulythegoats. For more inclusive medium podcasts and video production, see us at inclusivemedium.com. Next time on Truly the Goats, the story of John Donaldson, the greatest baseball player you've never heard of. I'm Oz Davis, thanking you for listening to Truly the Goats. sports history fan this is arnie chapman aka the football history dude and i hope that you enjoyed this recent episode presented by the sports history network and we're able to learn some good old-fashioned sports history knowledge nuggets i started the sports history network back in 2020 with the mission to help podcasters find a community of like-minded sports history nerds as well as helping aspiring podcasters to start their own shows We have a little bit over 30 shows on the network right now covering all sorts of sports history, but as far as I'm concerned, we're just at the toothpick in the ocean moment, you know that. Can't even figure it out because there's so much more coming. We wanted to create the ultimate headquarters for sports yesteryear, starting with Podcast Network and our website, but we're going to continue to move into other mediums as well. And here's the cool part, because we want you to be part of our team. So if you're interested in starting your own podcast, or maybe being a guest on one of our shows, Or who knows, maybe even write an article for us over on the website. Seriously, all you got to do is reach out to us on the contact page over at sportshistorynetwork.com. You can be as technologically savvy as a Neanderthal tapping on a stone trying to figure out this whole hieroglyphics thing back in the day. Again, it doesn't matter because even if you don't understand the whole podcast space, we have a production team that can pretty much help you out with doing everything. All you got to do, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com, head to the contact page, fill it out. That message goes right to me and I'll reach out to you as soon as I can. But for now, dude, I'm through if you're through.